Well, good morning, CPC. Uh, before we get started, I just want to uh, thank the Sawyer family again for leading us in worship. I know they're from Texas, but they sure make me feel like I'm back in Kentucky, so I, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Well, today is Super Bowl Sunday, right? Yeah, and so we're all friends here, and so I thought we would start by just kind of getting a, a gauge on where people are at. Any Falcons fans? Yeah, yeah. What about, what about the Pats? Any Pats fans? somehow exactly, exactly as I expected it to go. Um, it is Super Bowl Sunday, which means one thing, and that's in 56 days, Major League Baseball will begin to start its 2017 season, and I'd be lying if I wasn't just a little bit excited about that, because 2016 ended really well, right? Yeah. Well, as Liz mentioned in her prayer, I am John Grabiel. Um, I'm the director of student ministries here at CPC, and so typically I'm with our students, with our middle school, high school students, particularly our high school students. And so um, because I have this microphone and you don't, um, uh, I want to invite any high schoolers who are in this room to join us on Sunday evenings. We meet on Sunday nights uh, for a little get-together we call HSM, high school ministry. I know it's clever. Um, But we meet on Sunday nights, and there's food there, which is why I'm there most weeks anyway, and we would love to see you guys. Um, But this morning we're going to continue on in our series, True North. And Jerry kind of gave us a little bit of a recap last week. But if you haven't been with us, we started True North back in the fall, and we talked about what we believe in. We talked about things like God and Jesus, Scripture, the church. And then we hit Christmas, we took a little break, and then three weeks ago we jumped back into True North. And we're talking about what what do we do with those things that we believe in? What do we do with them? Should they affect the way we live? Do they affect the way we live? And that's where we find ourselves this morning, asking how we play out the role that we've been given as Christ followers in his kingdom. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at our text this morning, which is Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bible, you can grab that. If you have the app on your phone, you can follow along or to be on the screens as well. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. It's actually the whole chapter. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. 
Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink, for by doing this you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, I told you we were going to talk about what we should be doing, and Paul pretty much lays it out there. One of the things we're going to focus on this morning is what he says at the beginning of that chapter, that we should present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice, surrender, let's face it, those are words uh, that we don't particularly like. Follow, surrender, sacrifice. For most of us, those words make us a little bit uncomfortable because we generally associate sacrifice and surrender with giving up or losing and we don't like to give up. We don't like to lose, do we? No. And what are we giving up? Oftentimes, we don't like the word surrender or sacrifice because it feels like we're giving up control. And we all like that. We all like control. Some of us like control more than others. And if you're not sure if you're that person, if you came here with family and friends, you can look to your neighbor. I'm sure they'd be glad to tell you if you're one of those people. But we all like control a little bit. How many of you would be willing and honest enough to admit that there's probably some area of your life that you like to control? Yeah. Maybe it's something simple, okay? Maybe it's if at home everything has its place, right? Everything has its nice, perfect place. That's me, for sure. Or maybe you just like to color coordinate your closet, and you don't like for anyone to mess that up. Or maybe you're one of these people who are able to vacuum, and you can make these perfectly nice straight lines, right? Some of you are even so good at it that you can work yourself out of the room so that you have those nice, neat, perfect lines, and there are no footprints, right? And you don't let anyone else in the house vacuum because they can't do that. Maybe it's something simple like that. And, 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 and in, in, in line with the vacuum thing, I get that because that same sickness translates into mowing the yard. I know for me, I like the nice, neat lines when I mow my grass, right? And so, I admittedly have my own control issues, as I said. Mine kind of fits into that first category of having a nice, neat place for everything. Um, recently, that was brought to light by a friend of mine who I've known for almost 20 years at this point, and uh, he is aware of my shortcomings, and he likes to mock me for those shortcomings. And so, his family came over and had dinner with Emma and I, had a great dinner, they left, and a couple of days later, I had a text from my friend who, once again, is very much aware of my shortcomings. And his text was just a picture of a bookshelf in my house. And it just says, one of these things is not like the others. (laughs) And I started to look at the picture, 
And what he had done is he had taken a book off of my bookshelf and turned it upside down and put it back in the bookshelf. Now, you laugh, but the joke was on him because three minutes after they left the house, I saw it and I, and I changed it, flipped it back. Now, maybe it's not so simple, okay? Maybe for us, if we want something done right, we have to do it ourselves. Maybe we micromanage people to make them fit our expectations. Maybe it's a coworker or a relationship or a friend. Or this morning, let's get real personal. Parents, some of us like to control our children, do we not? Mom, Dad, I'm going to run out and get the mail. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't leave this house without a helmet on. And then you can go out and get the mail. Now, that's an extreme, but I read an article recently that I had a hard time believing. The article said that college graduates in America, 25 years and younger, okay? College graduates in America, 25 years and younger, 8% of them had their parents accompany them to their first job interview. Now, to be fair, it doesn't mean 8% of them went into the interview with them. It just means they accompanied them. But the article did go on to say that 3% of those 8% actually went into the interview with their child. I don't know what's happening, but I think it has something to do with control. We all have our areas, and some of us might have more areas than others that we like to control, but we all have our areas, areas that we can't seem to let go, areas that we can't seem to give up, areas that we can't seem to surrender or sacrifice. And real quick, I just want to sit on that word for a second, sacrifice, because it's a very churchy word. And I think we throw it around often, but I think it's important to remember what sacrifice is, what it meant, particularly in the Old Testament. Sacrifice is Old Testament worship language. In the Old Testament, the worshiper, us, we would bring a bird or a sheep or a bull, and we would bring it into the temple, and we would offer it to the priest as an offering to God, and the priest would sacrifice that animal. And by sacrifice, I mean, and that's putting it politely. And that was an offering to God. This was part of our worship. And at the heart of sacrifice was the idea that our sin or our shortcomings, our inadequacies, demanded a payment, demanded a punishment. And so the sacrificed animal represented God's willingness to accept a substitute on our behalf so that we could maintain some kind of relationship with God. And here in Romans that we just read, here in Romans, Paul says that we should be a living sacrifice, not a dead animal, but a living, breathing being created in God's image sacrifice. D.L. Moody, an American evangelist, noted that uh, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar, right? And so, what I want, if you have your bulletin and you have something to write with, we're going to come back to that. Just jot that down. The problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. And we're going to come back to that several times this morning. We're going to look at a guy named Peter. 
a guy that Jesus calls to follow him. And in order to get a good understanding of Peter, I think we have to go back a little bit and understand where he came from. And in order to do that, I'm going to do something with you guys that we've done before, and you guys did an amazing job with it, so I thought we'd do it one more time, and that's we're going to pretend together. Can you guys do that? Yeah. I've told you, if you you don't know, I have an eight-year-old daughter. Over the past eight years, I've become quite the expert in pretending. And so this morning, we're going to pretend together that we are good first-century Jews. Can you guys do that? Yeah, all right. Good first-century Jews. And as good first-century Jews, at about age six or seven, we would have headed off to school. Yeah, I heard some of that. We would head off to school. Now, it looks a little different than our modern-day American 2017 educational system. At age six or seven, as a good first-century Jew, you would head off to school, which means you would have headed off into the synagogue. And rather than learning math and science, you would have begun to learn Old Testament Scripture, particularly the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sounds awesome, right? You would have begun to learn the Torah, and I'm sure you guys already know this, but uh, there's a Jewish text called the Talmud, and the Talmud is basically a lot of written oral tradition. And in that, in the Talmud, it says this, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. From six upwards, accept him and stuff him with Torah like an ox. And that's what happens at age six or seven. You head off to school, and they begin to stuff you with Torah. So you begin to learn the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But not just learn them, you would begin to memorize them. So that at about age 10 or 11... When you finish that first round of school, you would basically have those first five books, the Torah, memorized, which you have memorized, right? Because you're good first century Jews, right? You would have that memorized. And so at about age 10 or 11, you would move on to the next level of schooling where you would begin to learn the rest of the Old Testament Scripture. And again, not just learn Old Testament Scripture, you would begin to memorize Old Testament Scripture. You would begin to talk about what the rabbis are discussing, the theology that they're talking about. But you would also begin to memorize the Old Testament, so much so that at about age 14 or 15, you would finish that second chunk of school and have the majority of Old Testament Scripture memorized. Genesis through Malachi. Memorized. You got that, right? Of course you do. Now, This is where it gets interesting, because at about age 14 or 15, you'd hit a crossroads. You, if you were the best of the best, and you really understood what was going on, you really had a grasp of Scripture, you were the, the cream of the crop in your class, the next step for you would be to become a disciple of a rabbi. So you would seek out a rabbi that you aligned with theologically, that you particularly looked up to. And you would go to that rabbi and say, I I want to follow you. Now, if you weren't the best of the best, if you weren't the cream of the crop, you went home and you began to learn the family trade, the family business, okay? So those were your two, two options. Now, if you were the best of the best and you went to that rabbi and you said, I want to follow you, 
the rabbi would begin to ask the student questions, lots and lots of questions. And again, it's not quite like our modern-day American educational system where we say, you know, we, give, we, provide, we teach our students the answers and we teach them the appropriate time to regurgitate those answers. Like if I were to say 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? You guys give the right answer. In the, in the Jewish tradition, if the rabbi were to say 2 plus 2 equals, the student might say 16 divided by 4, Right? It's a different approach to get to the answer. And so the rabbi sits with the student, and they get back and forth and back and forth. And then at the end of the conversation, the rabbi would say one of two things. The rabbi would either say, sorry, you just you don't have what it takes. You should probably go home, learn the family trade, learn the family business. Or the rabbi would say to the student, come follow And this was a common phrase for rabbis when they were accepting new disciples. Come, follow me. The, the, the Hebrew phrase literally means walk after me. Because that's what disciples did. They went everywhere their rabbi went and did everything that their rabbi did. Like I said, if school wasn't your thing, and there are those of us that that's the case, right? We would go home, we would learn the family trade, we would begin to learn the family business. Now, I say all that as an introduction to this guy named Peter, because when we're introduced to Peter in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter, and he sees Peter's brother off in the distance, and they cast their nets into the sea, and Matthew says with, he says they cast their nets into the sea, and then he says, for they were fishermen. For they were fishermen. And Jesus comes to them and says, Come, follow me. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. It's important to note that Matthew says, For they were fishermen. Because that means they were doing what? The family trade. The family business. Right? Peter wasn't good enough. He hadn't made the cut. He wasn't the cream of the crop or the best of the best in his class. He had gone home to learn the family trade and was working the family business. And Jesus comes to him and says, come follow me. Jesus, the rabbi, is asking these not good enoughs to follow him, which is the opposite of the way it usually happens. Usually the student comes to the rabbi, but the rabbi is coming to them and saying, come follow me. It's no wonder they dropped what they were doing and immediately followed him because they were being honored in a way that they had never been honored. And Peter, whether he knows it at this point or not, he's being asked to sacrifice. He's being asked to surrender. He willingly follows Jesus and isn't at all aware of what that means at this point. He was a fisherman, and now he's a disciple. And we fast forward in Peter's story, and in Matthew chapter 26, we know that Jesus says to Peter, tonight you'll leave me. Tonight you'll desert me. You'll deny me. And Peter says, I would never, I would never desert you. I would die with you. I won't deny you. And we know how the story goes. Later in Matthew 26, Peter denies Jesus three times in the courtyard after Jesus' arrest. So Peter, the fisherman, the not good enough, denies Jesus, denies the rabbi, 
that came to him and said, come, follow me. Remember that phrase, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. That's what we see in Peter. And then, to come full circle with Peter's story, Jesus is crucified, buried, and he's resurrected. And he comes to his disciple, Peter, and Peter's fishing again. And after a nice fish breakfast by the sea, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course, of course I love you. And Jesus says, well, feed my lambs. And a little bit later, Jesus asks again, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, you know I love you. And Jesus says, well, tend my sheep. And a little bit later, Jesus asks one more time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know everything. You know that I love you. And this is the first interaction between Jesus and Peter since Peter's denial. Jesus gives Peter that chance to follow him again. The last thing that Jesus says to Peter on that beach is, Peter, follow me. Peter had some good days, and Peter had some bad days. Much like we have some good days, and we have some bad days. Amen? But Peter's worst day wasn't bad enough, and his best day wasn't good enough. He was invited to follow because he was loved, not because he measured up to anything. We're invited to follow, not because we've done anything on our own, not because we're somehow adequate, not because we measure up. We're called to follow because we are loved. And Jesus loves each of us as we are, not as we think we should be. We're invited to surrender and to sacrifice because He surrendered and sacrificed. We're invited to give our lives to become a living sacrifice because He gave His life. And if we are to follow and be the people that Paul calls us to in Romans, remember what those people look like. People not conformed to this world. People who love genuinely, hate what is evil, holding on to what is good. If we're to be people who love with mutual affection, who rejoice in hope, who are patient in suffering, if we're to follow and be people who extend hospitality to strangers, who rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, who live in harmony with one another and are not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good and overcome evil with love, if we're to be that kind of people in that church, then perhaps the truest test of our sacrifice is the way that we treat each other. How we treat a sister or a brother from day to day, how we respond to the marginalized and oppressed among us, how we respond to interruptions from people we don't like, how we deal with normal people in their normal life on a normal day might be a better indication of who we follow than an ichthus on our bumper of our car or a nod to Jesus in a post on social media. If we're to follow and be the people Paul is calling us to, all we need to do is surrender. And if we go back to the beginning, what we really need to surrender to is this fear of failing. The idea that we're somehow 
going to fail no matter what. Because Jesus is calling us and saying, come, follow me. And I would be willing to bet in the back of Jesus' mind, he's saying, come, follow me. You're going to fail. And that's okay. You're going to crawl off the table. And that's okay. What did he ask of Peter? He gave Peter the keys to everything. He said, you're gonna, I'm going to build my church on you. This guy who kept crawling off the table. When we sacrifice and when we surrender and when we follow, the best news is that we can't really lose because we didn't really have anything to lose in the first place. When we surrender and when we slowly shape ourselves into this living sacrifice that Paul calls us to, we stand with Jesus with all of our sin and all of our inadequacy and all of our failures and all of our insecurities, and we're invited to follow, to surrender and to sacrifice because He surrendered and sacrificed. Invited to give our lives as a living sacrifice because He gave His life. And it's because of that undeserving grace that we've been given. And it's because of this sacrifice that was made for our inadequacies that we come to this table and share this meal together. Jesus is saying, I know you're going to crawl off that table at some point. And that's okay. As long as we keep coming back to that invitation that Jesus offers. Come, follow Amen.